Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's another scorchingly hot day across the state of Georgia. I I hope most of you are able to stay out of the sun, uh, stay inside uh, where you've got air conditioning. And for those of you who don't, um, I I just hope you take the best care of yourself you can, especially if you're an outdoor uh, worker. We were talking yesterday at my house about the sanitation workers uh, along the route in our neighborhood and just how difficult it is for them. At one point, uh, I noticed on my watch the temperature was 99 degrees at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, so it's been an awful period that's going to continue for a few more days ahead. But the political news is scorchingly hot, too, and we're going to talk about that with our panel on today's show, starting with the AJC editor, Kevin Riley, the boss himself, who joins us. How are you, Kevin? Bill, I am good, and I'm glad to be with you today because I know you're excited and you're in a good mood because today is the day that Atlanta will almost for sure find out that it is a World Cup Host. And I know you are you a are. soccer fanatic, and you don't care about I, the U.S. Open golf tournament starting today. I, 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 will, I am much more excited about the possibility that at 5 o'clock today it will be announced that, in fact, Atlanta is one of the many sites in North America for uh, the World Cup. And uh, we won't talk too much about that on today's show, but we'll talk even less about golf Uh, which is a sport I know absolutely nothing about. I turn to you for my information on golf when I need to get it, Kevin Riley. But thank you for joining us. Donna Lowry is uh, back with us. Donna Lowry, you've known her for years if you live in North Georgia as the education reporter for uh, Channel 11, for 11 Alive News, where she was one of the really outstanding television journalists in town. Now she's here at GPB, where she hosts Lawmakers. And Donna, tell everybody about the brand new show you're about to launch. Well, that's right. Thanks, Bill. I'm always glad to be on your show. We have a new show, and we're taking lawmakers to the next level. So we were there during the legislative session to talk about what's going on during the session. But we realize that there's so much more to tell. What happens after the laws are passed? What happens after the governor signs them? How do they affect people? Um, that's what we're going to look at. And so the new show is called Lawmakers Beyond the Dome. And we're launching it. It'll launch officially next week, next month, I should say, next month. And before then, we are asking for people to get involved. Our first subject matter will be about the concealed carry law that was passed and signed into law. And so we want people to to engage with us. If you have questions about the law, um, you know, however you feel about it, we'd love to hear from you. And we already have a place for you to send the questions. People can send questions to beyondthedome at gpb.org, beyondthedome at gpb.org. So we're excited about just taking it to the next level. You know, we we spend so much time, you know, three, four months, talking about what's coming up, what the laws are going to be. So what happens 
and how do they affect you? That's what we're going to talk about. Well, I, I, I look forward to uh, seeing the premiere of that show. Congratulations uh, to you for that, Thank you. Um, uh, Don, and thanks for being here today. Chuck Williams is back with us, uh, the legendary reporter from down in Columbus. He's, uh, he was in the print trade for a very long time. Now he's a reporter at WRBL-TV. Uh, Chuck, uh, how are you doing today? I'm staying inside today, Bill. It's really hot down here, too. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. And we haven't had Chris Grant on the show in his capacity as the chairman of the political science department and professor of political science at Mercer University for quite some time. Because, Chris, um, you spent a considerable amount of time in Ukraine you were evacuated from Ukraine and ended up in Poland while you were researching um, a big project. Um, and we did have you on the show from Poland talking about Ukraine. It's great that you're back in Macon, back at Mercer, and back on Political Rewind in that capacity. How are you, Chris? I, I am doing well. Um, I am hoping my best for the folks in Kiev, and um, it, it's all good. Um, all right. Well, let's get started. Uh, Kevin Riley. I, it's very hard to get our arms around this Barry Loudermilk story. We're not quite sure, any of us, what to make of it. Um, so I'm going to do something uh, that I think sets the table pretty well. In the jolt this morning, here's how the, uh, the, the story about Loudermilk is uh, presented. It's clear that the House committee investigating the January 6th riot uh, plus a good portion of the millions of people who have now seen the video believe it shows the Cassville Republican, Barry Loudermilk, either knowingly or unknowingly escorting around Donald Trump supporters who arrived in Washington wanting to harm Democratic members of Congress. One person. That man who has not been identified, has not been charged with any crimes, but he is shown in footage making veiled threats toward House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and others as he marched to the Capitol. Um, the video that was released, Kevin, shows this guy uh, taking photographs at stairwells, at security posts in Capitol office buildings, and the committee is concerned because these are not the sort of usual uh, sites that tourists uh, photograph. So we just don't know what, quite what to make of the story. Loudermilk insists it was all innocent. The Capitol Hill police have said they saw nothing suspicious when they looked at the video. But the January 6th committee has its doubts, Kevin. Yeah, I do think the Capitol Police statement is significant, Bill, and not and not to be overlooked. But, uh, you know, Loudermilk released a statement saying that the committee is creating this false narrative and selectively editing. But in the end, I mean, he hasn't said, well, here's the video and let me explain it to you. And he hasn't said, sure, I'll talk to the committee and explain this. I mean, they're just sort of lobbing things over the wall at each other. And um, that's not helpful to any of us uh, who, who are trying to understand whether there's significance to it. Uh, I actually think, though, in the big picture, it's a distraction in the middle of all of the stuff that the committee's doing. Uh, in the end, it sort of will be a footnote, but I, maybe I'm wrong. Um, at the very least, Chuck, if it's nothing more, it shows us just how suspicious each side is of the other. The environment is such that um, Democrats and Republicans eye each other as if they are almost enemies. There's no question about that, Bill. And what Kevin just said, I think, is 
spot on. This could end up being a distraction. I mean, that's what it feels like to me because we don't know. We don't know what the intent of the guy was. I mean, obviously, it was odd. It was extremely odd. And when you look at that, when you take to your question, Bill, when you take something that is odd like that, the other side is going to jump on it like white on rice and try to make their points politically using that video that video clip. So, but at the end of the day, it's odd. Um, we also have to talk about it, I think, at least briefly, Donna, because it's in Nash. It's Nash. It's in, uh, in in all of the national media. Uh, reporting right now it's a big it's become a big story for the new york times washington post the cable networks so i mean it's once again georgia in the middle of all this yes once again georgia everything everything seems to revolve some kind of finds it somehow finds its way to georgia i think for a lot of people who have watched who certainly watched the video the select committee showed last week who've looked at so much of what has come out since january 6th I've also wondered how all of this came into play. And I think the committee is doing a great job of kind of laying it out. And this is just another piece of it. Uh, the fact that there may have been reconnaissance missions to, to find out where things are. I mean, as you watch, as I watch those videos, I remember thinking, how did they know where to go, you know, into the stairwells? How did they know the right tools to take? All of this. It just shows the amount of planning that goes into it and whether it turns out to be anything for louder milk or not, it certainly is another piece to this big puzzle on how something like January 6th happened in this country. Chris? Well, I would just say that one of the things as political scientists that always interests me about this is whether Representative Loudermilk had any idea this was going on or not. I don't know that he did. Um, I certainly know some folks that tend toward the more moderate side of the Republican Party. They're quite fond of him. Um, but is that he has to attract a party constituency in the primary. Because of the gerrymandering of the districts, you have to appeal to your base, and you don't have to appeal to moderates. So even if he knew the person he was giving the tour to was a bit off, he still got to appease that constituency lest he be primaried in the future. And I think that's one of the implications of our politics when you get into this sort of thing, is that our elected representatives have to appease some aspects of the political spectrum that they might not normally appease otherwise. And I have no idea about Representative Loudermilk and where he stands on any of this or whether he was involved or in any way or not. But it is part of the, the, the calculus that our elected representatives have to play, which is that they have to play to their bases. Um, the only other piece we'll add to this, and we'll watch how it unfolds in the days and weeks ahead, uh, Loudermilk has resisted the efforts of the January 6th committee to get him uh, in there to answer questions, uh, as you've already pointed out on the panel here today. But the, the um, only other thing we should point out, Kevin, is that this tour did take place during that period of, uh, when the Capitol was actually shut down. Uh, because of COVID restrictions. So again, that doesn't mean there's anything nefarious about it. It's just, it adds another layer to this. Why did Loudermilk want to take this group through the Capitol? And it may be because of what Chris Grant said. You've got to uh, uh, take care of the constituency. 
Well, yeah, I think that's the oddest thing about it, that it happened when these tours were not allowed. And according to uh, most of the stories, it went on for hours or a couple hours and wasn't yeah. like a short tour. I mean, if you've ever gone to Washington uh, uh, and tried to get together with one of your representatives, they usually don't have hours for you. I mean, I know that we're journalists and political scientists and others they may not want to spend a lot of time with, but hours? I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, by the way, we should also, one last note, point out that this tour went through areas of the Capitol complex that you don't normally take people. I mean, going through hallways and tunnels, just not part of the Capitol tour. But again, uh, that's enough on that subject. We, I did want to address it, but I want to move on to other election news. And, and Chuck Williams, I want to start with a story that I just saw before we went on the air today, but we can all talk about it, I think, uh, pretty readily. Um, Brian Kemp, Chuck, has now weighed in on the 10th District Republican runoff between Vernon Jones and Mike Collins. He has now endorsed Mike Collins, the son of former uh, and now deceased Congressman Mac Collins, over Vernon Jones. Not surprising in some ways, since Vernon Jones was a always Trumper who attacked Brian Kemp routinely. Uh, nevertheless, uh, here you go again, a Trump candidate, Vernon Jones, with at, uh, being opposed now by a Brian Kemp candidate, uh, Mike Collins. Chuck? I'm not surprised by the governor's endorsement. I think it, it does set up another Trump camp. But, I mean, Mike Collins, and I don't know Mike Collins, but I knew his dad. His dad was a congressman in Columbus, was part of mm -hmm. uh, Congressman Collins' district for a long time. He had a lot of strong, strong ties into the Columbus community. So, you know, I suspect he's pretty close to a chip off the old block. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see who turns out for this runoff up there in the tent and where it, where it goes. But, you know, that's a significant endorsement for Mike Collins. Yeah, it's really great theater in the tent. Let's just be honest. I mean, uh, Vernon Jones has not backed off. He's been consistent. I mean, in the debates and in other venues, he practically begged Kemp to uh, endorse anyone but him. I mean, he's declared Kemp everything that you can imagine, uh, uh, you know, and, and when uh, – there's also been these accusations of the campaign literature that uh, Collins has sent out. I mean, so uh, I, I, let's just agree that, you know, maybe these two, uh, this race isn't making Georgia look like quite the wonderful place to live that we all believe it is. Yeah, it's one of the nastiest races that we've seen uh, in, in a period, in a time when races that are nasty are not at all unusual. But, Chris, here's why it's significant. Uh, Brian Kemp. Because of the extraordinary victory he had over David Perdue, is inarguably the most powerful Republican politician in Georgia right now. And in the 10th district, which is his home district, Governor Kemp um, won some of the district's counties by more than 80 percent of the vote. So when he gives an endorsement to Mike Collins, that means something. I would just add that it's interesting how Governor Kemp has embraced his mantle of the renegade Republican anti-Trumper um, when, of course, his candidacy was endorsed in the runoff four years ago by President Trump and probably led to 
at least some speculation that's why he won the runoff uh, against Casey Cagle. And, and I think this is—I think this shows the strategic intelligence of Brian Kemp. I, a lot of things do, but that he's doubling down on what this mantle is that he's been given. If he'd been given a different mantle, he may have doubled down on that. But his strategic opportunistic, um, and I mean that in a positive sense, um, from a strategic politician who's capable of embracing whatever is laid before him, I think does point to some of his um, abilities. Um, I've, I've often said that Brian Kemp is actually an Episcopalian from Athens, if you look back at his history, but he has been able to embrace um, roles and persona that make him connect to an awful lot of other people in the state of Georgia. And I, I think Mike Collins makes a lot of sense for him in trying to embrace um, that kind of mantle. I, I think it's this, fair to say that the, his conservative uh, constituents are, are, would embrace him. I mean, those who think he's been far too conservative for the state of Georgia would take issue with him uh, <laughs> uh, being a man for all people in the state. Madonna? Yeah, well, see, I moderated the debate for the Atlanta Press Club for this particular district, and the, it's clear these these two guys really, really hate each other. They really dislike each other. And uh, the, uh, this doesn't surprise me that, um, that, that Kemp will come, would come out in, uh, on the, the Mike Collins side on all of this. You know, Vernon Jones not only um, said very awful things about um, the, the, the governor, but he also did not, does not have a lot of friends, really frankly, down at the Capitol. He really doesn't, uh, especially switching sides. Even as a Democrat, he didn't have a lot of friends down there. Uh, he, he antagonized a lot of people. And so it kind of makes sense that, uh, the, that the governor would come out and, and, support, and, and support Mike Collins in all of this. The, 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 the reality is, as we get closer to this runoff on Tuesday, that, that people are trying to figure out where, where to go in all of this. And with Kemp's popularity, despite the fact that Trump has bashed him, um, I, it makes sense that, sense that he would want to go ahead and say, okay, this is who I want, and, um, and uh, you know, go for it. You know, I want to keep going on what, where Chris was taking us. Um, let's, just, let's just imagine something for a moment, okay? <laughs> so let's imagine that uh, Kemp, who I think without question has been a shrewd and smart strategic politician and, and knows what to do with his power when he has it, whether you agree with him or not. I mean, he's, he's done what he's done. Let's imagine that he does, he beats Stacey Abrams this fall. And all of a sudden he becomes maybe the most prominent Republican governor in one of the most important states in the union and the man who perhaps gets credit with beating back Trump and also beating back Stacey Abrams, one of the Democratic Party's highest profile people. I mean, you have to wonder where his career will go next. I mean, I think we're, we could be seeing the beginning of something that could be pretty amazing if you can step back and, and imagine, you know, what politics might be in a, in a few years. Um, all right. Uh, I want to move on and talk about uh, the governor's race. There are some interesting developments in the way uh, Kemp and Abrams are campaigning there. Um, Donna, you uh, were down at a uh, conference of state school superintendents 
where I think you presided over a, a session in which uh, you got to, uh, uh, which Kemp and Abrams both talked about their school uh, policies. Let's start by talking about what each of them had to say about school safety. Oh, uh, yeah, that was the, the, big, uh, the, the big push. So this was the Georgia School Boards Association. So there were superintendents there, but this is mainly school board members from oh, all I apologize. 180 school districts across the state. And this was their chance to, to talk, to hear from the politicians who've been talking, <laughs> who, who have been talking about education all along. And of course, we know that education is always a big issue. Uh, and to hear from them and, um, and not, and not necessarily interact from them, but, but just with them, but actually hear what they have to say. So Kemp, um, the governor chose to just do a speech, and he, he started his speech talking about some of the things that, that he is focusing on when it comes to, to school safety, in particular making sure that there is more access to active shooter classes and that there is more focus on safety plans in all the schools and really talking about the amount of money that he is putting into those areas and into the big mental health parity bill which is also a big piece of the school safety piece. Uh, and so he, he spoke about that. When it, with Abrams, I had a conversation where I interviewed her in front of the group. She wanted that type of um, forum where I just threw out topics. And when I talked about school safety, she also got into it, all, um, not to the degree she has since then, I will say, where she's talked about guns, but she talks, she's, she, her big focus is on guns, and she just made that clear. She does not like the um, legislation on concealed carry. She doesn't like the so-called guns everywhere law that where she was in the legislature when that came about in 2014. So that, that those were mainly the differences. Let's focus on the the school safety stuff with Kemp versus um, Abrams focusing more on how guns come to play in all of this. And since then, of course, and I guess we'll talk about this a little bit more, she has come down really against Kemp when it comes to um, the gun manufacturer in the state of the yeah. guns that were used in Uvalde. Yeah, let, let's, Chris, that, that's exactly right. Um, it's not surprising that Brian Kemp, in the aftermath of Uvalde, emphasizes what they call hardening schools and their security measures rather than doing anything about uh, access to guns. But now, as Donna just mentioned, the Abrams campaign, which, which does have a, pol a, a has just uh, put out a new policy of where they stand on guns, uh, has started with a, t a radio ad now criticizing Kemp for having taken $50,000 in contributions from Daniel Defense, the uh, weapons maker in South Georgia that made manufactured the gun, the AR-15 that was used in Uvalde. The narrator says, Georgia lives are on the line. If we want to keep our kids and families safe, the only thing we can do is vote Brian Kemp out of office. Chris? Well, I think that you have two candidates who are incredibly um, good at being politicians. Um, Stacey Abrams is brilliant in the way she presents herself and the way she takes clear policy stances. I don't think anybody can criticize her a lick on not being clear and understandable and projecting uh, intelligence and passion in her cam campaign. 
What I think was surprising to a lot of us, including me, was how good Brian Kemp is at maximizing his um, features as a candidate. And I oftentimes use the um, debate from four years ago in my class where um, Brian Kemp comes out and says, yes, you know, Stacey Abrams is a great speaker. She's going to be able to beat me in this debate up one side and down the other. He was better in that debate than I think a lot of people give him credit for. Now, so going to the issue of guns, there's a clear differential amongst Georgians. There's a clear differential amongst Americans about what gun safety ought to encompass. I don't think anybody's debating that we need better mental health uh, services, but the real question is how much do you restrict guns? And, and I think Abrams is maximizing the sentiment on that side, but that also has the effect of galvanizing on the other side um, the folks that do not want any kind of gun control. And so in some ways um, she has taken a stance where she may reach out and she may gather some more enthusiasm from the middle, but she may also have, have, have helped Brian Kemp to galvanize the sport behind him in this, this particular um, issue. Um, I think it's interesting to watch both of them. They're both masters at what they do. Chuck, uh, a Abrams told Axios uh, Atlanta that she plans to institute as governor a state red flag law and to close certain loopholes like background checks for gun show sales and domestic violence uh, perpetrators. Um, and, and Chuck, she added another point that I think is kind of interesting and worth discussing. She said she would be able, she said that, um, that even as a Democratic governor with a Republican legislature in the Capitol, she could make progress on gun control and public safety. And she said that um, rank-and-file members tend to vote with their leadership more than they vote with their constituents. My goal is to make certain I provide them with leadership that lets them vote with their constituents to give them cover. It's an interesting uh, approach to um, how you, she thinks she might be able to get Republicans on her side. The most interesting word in that whole thing to me was cover. I thought that mm -hmm. illustrated what Chris was just speaking to, her political savviness, her ability to work within a system. And I covered the race a little bit four years ago and interviewed both of them. I covered the Republican primary pretty heavily for at least out of the Columbus side of it uh, in this year and had a recent podcast interview with Abrams. One thing I've noted, and this goes to what Chris was just saying, one of the things I have noticed is both of them are sharper, they're clearer, they're more refined, they're better focused. And I think when you get the two of them on a debate stage and you put I mean, I think Donna could narrate, I mean, could moderate an entire debate on just guns with these guys. You could fill a whole hour on what they would say about guns and how they would play off of each other. And that's before you get to Medicaid for all and the other issues. I mean, just, so I think this rematch is going to be spectacularly interesting because you have got two candidates. It's, it's almost like a football rematch. It's almost like a Super Bowl rematch is what it feels like to me. And both teams are better than they were four years ago. Ah, Kevin. I, I think Chuck nailed it. And, you know, Chris, too. Uh, and, of course, Donna now has been uh, voluntold to do a debate between the two. So I'm looking yeah. forward to that, right? Uh, but so I actually think this is pretty insightful and interesting. So let's take those two key issues abortion and guns, 
Okay. Now, they both have decided they will stick with their core constituency on those matters, and they will campaign as such. What Stacey Abrams is trying to do is take advantage of the fact that polling shows most Georgians don't want Roe v. Wade overturned, and most Georgians want regulation on guns. And so she's positioning her opponent as, as a leader He's out of touch with regular people, and he's forcing the people of his party to do something they know that their constituents don't want. I think that's a pretty shrewd and smart position to take, and I'm interested to see how he counters it. Um, She also uh, says uh, that she would roll back the permitless carry uh, law, which uh, was passed and signed by the governor in the last session of the legislature. Not surprising she would have that position. But then I thought it was another thing she told Axios that was particularly interesting. She told Axios that stronger gun control proposals like uh, an assault weapons ban, uh, which she had co-sponsored herself in 2016, aren't tenable right now. So in some ways, she's taking, Donna, a pretty realistic position on this. Yeah, and I think she's picked the right moment to do it, considering what we're seeing in this country when it comes to um, the mass shootings, the, the, the amount of violence that we're seeing, and she's taking advantage of this chance to be able to really get people thinking about some of the issues surrounding guns and I do agree that it, it might backfire on her that, that because it'll fire up the, the other side on this. It also allows, um, it, it gives some who are on the fence on these issues the chance to really start thinking about some of the things that are surrounding these issues. So, uh, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, did you want to finish? That's okay. okay I'm, let's done. Do- I'm done. I'm <laughs> done. Okay, let's do this. Let's get to our first break. Back in a minute with more. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back with Mercer University's Chris Grant, Donna Lowry of GPB-TV, Chuck Williams of WRBL-TV, and Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Uh, Chuck, very just give us a brief uh, insight about what you thought. You just did a longer or an extended interview with Stacey Abrams for your podcast. Um, what did you think were some of the most interesting things she had to say to you in that? Yeah, the most interesting thing to me is probably of no interest to anybody else in the state outside of Muskogee County. She talked about the Columbus, the Muskogee County property tax freeze. And it's a situation here where when you buy the house, your home as your home property value is frozen at the time you purchase the home. So it creates inequities from people on the same street. Somebody that bought the house in 1999 is obviously going to pay somebody, pay less than somebody that bought the house in 2021. And her level of detailed knowledge, and granted, she's a tax attorney, 
But her level of detail knowledge was fascinating to me, and we ended up spending about five minutes of the podcast talking about that, including her opinion that it's unfair. And that's an opinion that I have heard Republicans and Democrats, particularly ones that have to wrestle with budget issues, uh, say, hey, you know, it's not a equitable property tax system. And her ability to discuss it's the first time I've ever had anybody on the state level come into Muskogee County and talk property tax with a with you know with me that that had that had the grasp of it she did. Hey, uh, I'm going to give Chuck a chance to promote his podcast and let all the listeners know where they can find it. But he's leaving out the best part of the podcast, uh, I felt like. So one of the things he does is whoever he's interviewing, he asks, he lets them ask him a question. And so uh, Stacey Abrams asks, if I recall it correctly, Chuck, and you can, you can be more clear, she asked you to talk about what leadership quality uh, of all the people you've interviewed has most, I think, surprised or impressed you. And it kind of threw you there for a minute. I knew that, but, but why don't you tell us about that one? <laughs> the first, the podcast is the Chuck Williams Show. It can be heard on WRBL.com. It can be found on the podcast platforms. And thanks for the plug, Kevin. I owe you a Coke or a beer. Um, <laughs> but she asked about the leadership thing, and I spun back to a guy that was here in 2014, 2015, was commanding general of Fort Benning, Scott Miller. He, some of you may remember General Miller. He was the last commander in Afghanistan before the pullout. And he had an ability to deal with everybody. And the best leaders I've seen can go in and talk to anybody, make anybody feel special, listen to them, and relate to them. And, you know, and I'll spin back to this election that we're fixing to deal with, with uh, for governor. Both Governor Kemp and Stacey Abrams had the ability to walk into a room and talk to anybody in that room on their level. And, you know, and that, I think that's what's going to make this race so interesting is take away the commercials, take away the TV and the, you know, the, inter- the newspaper interview style is, but go to the events and watch them relate with people. Both of them do it very, very well. I, I was Chris. just going to tag on to that for one second. You know, a lot of people decry politicians. We don't like politicians. Mm-hmm. They're so bad. But really in this race, you're seeing two folks that are masters of politics. They really are very good at what they do. I have differences of opinion on the issues with some of them, and there are things that I don't like about some of them, but they really are quite good at listening and working a room and being good politicians. And the other thing we have is real clash on issues. They're taking different stands. I don't know how anybody in Georgia this year can say there's not a dime's bit of difference between the two of them, and I hate all of politics. This is about as good as the American system can produce. And I think we ought to be happy about that for once um, and and take some pride in what our state has produced because a lot of other things we've been producing in the political world of late has not been so impressive. I was just going to add that this is one time where it is really refreshing to talk about the issues. We're hearing about the issues and not about when it comes to that race in particular and not about what's going on with Trump and not about a a lot of the other things, you know, they're talking about guns. They're talking about 
uh, school safety. There's talking about mental health issues. We're hearing about the issues, and that's what people want to hear about. So in that particular race, I think uh, you've gotten masterful politicians really doing the work and really giving the voters a chance to look at both sides and really think about what they care about and what they want in uh, a governor. Well, one group of people that has to be really happy about this idea of talking about the issues, teachers. I mean, first of all, last time Brian Kemp put that $5,000 raise out there for teachers and just outflanked Stacey Abrams. And Stacey was forced to argue about uh, the insincerity of his proposal. I mean, you know, like ex- try to explain it away. And now she's gone even further, and, and, you know, to get ahead of him on this time and, and is insisting we're going to make Georgia teachers among the best paid in the country. I mean, if I'm a teacher, I'm sitting around saying, let's keep going. We'll get we'll, this is good for me. And I think there could be a number of things for our state that this kind of spirited debate with true differences in how you see this, the policies of the state and the future of the state could be good for us. And we could do things that move us forward. Well, Donna, that was another thing that came up at the School Boards Association uh, conference that I wanted to ask you about. Abrams now says she's going to raise the starting pay of teachers by $11,000 to put them in line with starting pay for teachers in uh, other states around the country. And then ultimately that would raise everybody's uh, uh, pay considerably. Um, but, But while pay raises are certainly an important element of this, on the other side of it, and I wonder how it played down uh, at the uh, conference, is uh, the restraints that are being placed on teachers in terms of teaching about race, uh, uh, the potential for uh, parents to come in and look at banning books. Uh, how important an element was that in the conversation? It, it, uh, you know what? The, the group wanted more of that, and I threw the idea out there for her to talk about that, and I did it in general terms, in terms of <laughs> culture, so that she could lean into it any way she wanted. She didn't get into specifics, but she did talk about the the restraints on teachers that to be able to do what they want to do in the classroom. The, the restraints that, that are now placed on principals and superintendents and with school board members as the audience, how they are going to be able to set policies based on what we saw come out of the legislative session. She didn't come out right in, you know, and say CRT or obscene books or parental bill of rights. But she did acknowledge the fact that there, that the culture within schools will change coming up, and that she, and, and while no, like again, no specifics, that she is willing to look at some of those things and 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 gain an understanding of what could happen. I won't be surprised if she does come out with something more specific. I get the impression she's rolling out things. For instance, it was Saturday that I talked to her in front of the school board members. It was Sunday that she announced that the this money that she would like to see increased in terms of starting teacher salaries, but she did it in front of the AFL-CIO. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. She did it in front of the Georgia Association of Educators, which is um, essentially a labor union. And then she went to the AFL-CIO um, meeting where Biden spoke of her highly. So I, um, I know I, she knows I, the I, audience she has. I, I do want to move on, but I will say one other thing about this, Chuck. When you're talking to school board members, you're talking about people who are now, in many cases, increasingly living in war zones. Their school board meetings becoming increasingly fractious, 
uh, increasingly combative. So it's an interesting group to be talking about policies uh, uh, with, Chuck. No question. And, and from what I've seen of her, those types of focus groups, teachers, um, you know, young, young Democrats, where it's a focus group of people, she hones in extremely well with those groups. And I would not be surprised to see a lot more of that over the next, what, 115 days? How long we got left to this is over, Kevin? <laughs> All right. Uh, I want to move on. I, we got to get to a break. But before we do, I know that there are times when I bring up the name Marjorie Taylor Greene. There are listeners who say, why do you even give her time uh, on your program. And the reason is that there are sometimes when she says things that I think need to be explicated and that are so outrageous, people deserve to hear what a congresswoman in the state of Georgia has to say about a big issue. We're in the middle of one of the worst heat waves that I can recall in my 39 years in Georgia. And it's interesting that this happens to be the time when Marjorie Taylor Greene talked about climate change on a right-wing talk show and, in fact, said that um, climate change was good for us. Listen. We've already warmed one degree Celsius, and do you know what's happened since then? Here, let me tell you. We have had more food grown since Mm. then, which feeds people. We are able to, producing fossil fuels keeps people's houses warm in the winter. That saves people's lives. People die in the cold. Right. This, this, this earth warming and, and, and carbon is, is actually healthy for us. It, 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 is, it's able, it helps us to feed people. It helps keep people alive. It helps, there's, the earth is more green than it was um, years and years ago, and that's because of the earth warming. That's because of carbon. Kevin, here's why you can't ignore this. She won her uh, primary by a substantial amount. I think she won 70% of the vote in the Republican primary. So that means there are constituents who are listening to what she has to say and clearly uh, believe that she speaks to them with authority. I don't even think some of the more uh, conservative uh, thinking about the climate would go as far as Marjorie Taylor Greene in suggesting that the warming earth is healthy for us. I just don't know what to say, Bill. I mean, um, of course, she's not going to have a lot to do with climate policy, I suppose. And so maybe we can take some uh, solace in that. But, um, I I mean, what are you talking about? That's all I could think of as you play that clip. All right. Uh, Chris? I I just say that there's an article that Patricia Murphy wrote in the AGC a bit ago about Marjorie Taylor Greene that was really insightful. Um, and how she is able to be a representative um, for her constituents who may or may not buy into what she's saying, but that she is able to represent a voice that they want to hear and they want to be heard. Um, and um, I would just I would just add that, that I think that that's true. There are 750,000 or so Georgians who are represented in that district. I think it's a little bit less than that when the maps are finally done. Um, at least enough of them voted for her to get her elected. So in this glorious representative democracy, um, she gets to have a voice and a platform to say, yes, she will. And, and I, 
I, I puzzled by what my fellow citizens may be thinking in making that choice, but they are making that choice. And, and the last part of that I would just add is I've been talking about the devastating droughts in India where the green is literally drying away and people are going to starve because of climate change this year. And I think that she, we have an obligation to educate her and the people in her district about what really is going on in the world. And, and food production is down in a lot of places where food production is desperately needed. Chuck, final word before a break. All I could say after listening to that is this is going to be an incredibly healthy day in Georgia today when it's 100 degrees. <laughs> right. All right. That's it. That's it for this segment of the show. Uh, we're going to take a break, come back. we got time for a little more in just a moment. Kevin Riley, uh, the AJC has rolled out an extraordinary investigative series that you call Dangerous Dwellings, which tells us the story of these apartment complexes, dilapidated, uh, underserved, dangerous apartment complexes that are owned by obscure uh, equity firms and the like. Today is not a, a day we're going to be able to get into it in great detail, um, but I, I, in fact, want to have your reporters on in a special show talking about this. I just want to commend you on, on this series. Just say a couple of words about what an amazing uh, job your investigators have done on this. Thank you, Bill. I'll say three things. First, we've worked on it for years. Kevin? Uh, can you hear me, Bill? Okay. Go ahead. We're good. I'm sorry. Um, I'll say three things, Bill, and be quick, because I know we don't have much time. The first is worked on it for years. Second is put together a lot of information about these troubled apartment complexes. And what listeners need to know is 20% of all the homicides in Metro Atlanta occur in some of these most troubled apartment complexes. And third, you as a taxpayer pay for it because much of this housing is subsidized, and you're also paying for the endless police and emergency calls to all these places. We really need, as a community, to fix this. Um, it's, it's really extraordinary, and I, I encourage people to, uh, uh, to read it as it unfolds. Um, and we do want to do a special show at some point, especially, I guess, after we get the runoff elections out of the way, because it, we're, it's deserving of an entire episode. It's kind of shocking. Chuck Williams, I also want to talk about a story that you broke yesterday, which I think plays into a larger narrative that we can discuss. You're, uh, you've reported that um, two of the contenders in the uh, second district Republican congressional race uh, have written a letter complaining that Fox News singled out one of the contenders in that race, Jeremy Hunt, gave him enormous amounts of airtime, never had the other candidates on at all, and that they say it was clear Fox was picking favorites in that race on trying to get Hunt the nomination, which, which, which happened. No, he doesn't have the nomination yet. He's in a runoff against Chris West. And that runoff will be on Tuesday. Chris West is a Thomasville attorney. Jeremy Hunt's a West Point graduate. Uh, 
from the Atlanta area, is a Yale Law School student working online, has been a Fox contributor, has had a relationship with Fox going back to 2016 when he was active duty military. Uh, interesting part of this is Jeremy's had 15 appearances on Fox since January the 13th. That's when he announced his candidacy on Fox. Uh, uh, Wayne Johnson, a making businessman, finished third. He's not in the runoff. He's the one who originally thought something didn't feel or smell right. And he wrote a letter to Fox in February and another one in May uh, complaining. Uh, Johnson did get one, to correct one thing just as you said, Bill, Johnson did appear on a brief segment. But a lot of what Hunt's been on has been Fox and Friends, but he's also been on with Cudlow. He's also been on with Laura Ingram. So he's been on a variety of the Fox shows, and, and he it almost always starts the same way. He'll talk about Ukraine, where he served uh, as an Army officer in 2016, helping train Ukraine forces. But then it will spin, usually the interviews will spin into a uh, – um, into a campaign pitch and sometimes a fundraising pitch on those Fox shows. And the, the hosts of the shows will play along with it. And this is where Johnson, Wayne Johnson says Fox has crossed the line. He says that it comes down to fair time. And it also comes down to that is Fox acting as a pact for this candidate for office. And, you know, Hunt, uh, Jeremy Hunt didn't comment on our story. I wish he had. I'd love to have known what he was thinking about this because he has moved in here and, you know, and it, he, he got 38%, Hunt got 30%, but he's outspent Hunt well over a million dollars. Um, Hunt has outspent West well over a million dollars, a million one to like 200,000, and that counts the Pats that are supporting Hunt as well. So it, it, this is of, of interest in some ways, I think, Kevin, because we, we want to know what is Fox News's role these days in politics? We, there, there's been a lot of criticism of the fact they have refused to carry the January 6th committee hearings, which um, ought to be of great interest to Republicans and Democrats across the country. Um, and, and yet they have refused to do it. Not only have they refused to do it, but they're counter-programming by uh, having uh, numerous Republicans on to, uh, to talk about, to criticize what their viewers aren't getting to see, uh, saying this is all a Democratic witch hunt. It does raise serious questions uh, again, continually, about Fox News. I would just say they seem to be in a very different business. And uh, you're in, I'm in, Chuck's in, Donna's in. Uh, which is really about informing people in the best way we know how as fairly as we can so that they can make decisions about their lives and, you know, to whom, for whom they should vote. And um, that's a tough job. We don't always do it perfectly, but I know how hard you work at it on the show, and I know how hard we all work at it, and I wish they would work a little harder at that. Chris? I was just going to say, I also live in the district. Um, district swings over to Macon, and I live in Peach County now. Um, and what I was been interesting because I don't put a whole lot of stock in this, but the signs out on the road in my area are overwhelmingly for West. And I've asked some people about it, and they've said they really don't like Jeremy Hunt's carpetbagger. And so this may actually wind up backfiring on him. Um, I don't know that. 
All right. Um, Chris Grant gets the last word on today's Political Rewind. Chris Grant from Mercer, pleasure to have you, uh, you with us. Chuck Williams, always great to have you. Donna, good luck with the brand new show that starts next month on GPB-TV. Kevin Riley, always love having you with me as my partner on the Thursday show. We're out of time for today's Political Rewind, but of course back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>